Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Tea and Murder, an Agatha Christie podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy Norman. Here we're part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. And I am so excited to have here with me today Manon Wogan. Manon is a publishing professional with a love for mystery. She works as the publishing operations manager for Author Imprints. Online, she's known as Mystery Manon, sharing book reviews and mystery related content on Instagram and TikTok. Menon is also the editor of The Clues Letter, a mystery-themed bi-weekly newsletter, which if you are not signed up for, I really recommend. It's a lot of fun. Thank you for being here, Menon. It's so nice to see you. Thank you, Rebecca, for having me join. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you here. I've been following you for a while, and I just love your reviews and your joy about books, and I'm really excited to talk with you about this book. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. I'm excited too. This was a really interesting Christie book, I think. I, it really a lot is. to talk about. Yeah, we, well, there's so much to talk about. So before we get to the book, why don't you tell me a little bit about your relationship to Agatha Christie's work? Okay. Well, I was thinking about this mm -hmm. and I wish I could be one of those people who say that they grew up reading Agatha Christie. <laughs> I know I know a lot of people read it, read her books as children. And I'm really envious of that because I was still stuck in my middle grade era with uh, Trixie Belden and Nancy Drew. And there's another series I like called Sammy Keys by Wendelin Van Drain. And, and I read a lot of those when I was a kid, but it never really crossed over in the Christie realm. Mm -hmm. And then in, in college, I came home for the summer and it was a beautiful, hot, summery summer and I wanted something to read. And so I picked up uh, and then there were none. Mm -hmm. And I remember it vividly because it was so hot and it was summer. So I was by the pool, I was sunbathing and I was reading this really creepy book and I was just chilled to the bone reading this book. And I realized, you know, what a special skill as a writer to craft this 
intense atmosphere mm-hmm. and make a really creepy book that you can feel a little bit freaked out even when you are in a completely different environment. And that really opened up my world to Agatha Christie. And, you know, I haven't read as many books as I'm sure a lot of people. I have a lot of Christie left to read. Mm. But every book, it's like uncovering another piece of her that I didn't realize was that she was able to write. And yeah, I just, you know, it's it's so easy to love her work because it's intellectually challenging and yet also very easy to read, I think. I agree. So, yeah. That's so true. And and so you've started with And Then There Were None, which I think is actually a shared experience with a lot of people. Are there any other mm-hmm. favorites from what you've read so far? Well, I've read all of the big ones, definitely. Um, I think I went next to Death on the Nile and then mm-hmm. Murder on the Orient Express. And I, I'd already seen a lot of... I've. I mean, I watched the entire Poirot TV series with David yeah. Suchet, so I already knew a lot of the mysteries, but yeah. I'd forgotten a lot of the solutions, actually. Yeah. So and a lot the of them are changed as well. well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that was kind of a fun way to interact with her, to reinteract with her work is to, you know, re- revisit these stories that I already knew. Um, but my other favorites, I have to say one of my all-time favorites is Why Didn't They Ask Evans? Mm, I okay. I really like that one because, you know, the mystery isn't the most complex. I didn't feel very challenged by it Mm -hmm. or surprised. Um, But I thought what versatility she has as a writer to create one of the funniest poisoning scenes that I've ever read because there's that scene with a poisoning. I thought, how am I laughing at this poor guy who almost just got, you know, killed? Um. I I just adored that story and um it made me realize that she has this natural sense of humor. Yeah. In addition to all of her other skills, her humor is really strong and that yeah. comes across in a few books in particular and I think Evans is one of those. Yeah. I agree with you. I think her humor is quite underrated because it's so wry and it's understated. Um mm-hmm. but I completely agree with you. Um so you work in uh, book publishing, and you run a book-based Instagram account as well as newsletter, the Clues Letter, which we talked about. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to where you are today? Have you always wanted to work with books? Oh, really good question. Because no, <laughs> <laughs> I, could, <laughs> I I fell into it really accidentally. I you know I grew up as a big reader, of course, and I loved mysteries my my whole life, but mm-hmm. I didn't really think that that was something I wanted to do. And I actually studied art history in college. Um, I have a bachelor's in art history, which in a way is kind of like a mystery thing because research is at its core trying to figure something out like a like a mystery puzzle. And so after I graduated, I was looking around for jobs in museums and such. And, and you know, my 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 dad runs a family publishing business and he just had me start doing some things on the side for him. And then eventually after a year or so, I just took the plunge and started working full time. And then it was like another year or so after that, that I started to realize I didn't feel fully engaged in publishing because I wasn't reading as much as I could be. And so I started actually my book platforms. I started with Instagram really with the simple goal of reading more. Mm. which is I if you're on the fence about starting a bookstagram like that is a great reason to do it because you're you're getting encouraged to read more and mm. I think that starting a bookstagram is like the best yeah. way to do that it incentivizes yeah. you to be reading absolutely and yeah. it, and seeing what other people are reading is honestly a little inspirational too mm. 
and it's a great way to engage with people. And I, I actually started during the pandemic. So that was like oh, another wow. level of socializing for me is, is talking about books with people online. Yeah. And what is it about the social media platforms that you find engaging in terms of books? Is it the community? Is it how you create your videos? Like what is the part for you that you find the most creatively fulfilling? Well, it began with the community, mm -hmm. definitely. And I have some book friends and authors that I'm still, you know, I would say that I'm online friends with them now, um, even after several years. And so those people really made that community worth being in, especially yeah. with mysteries, because there's such a, a fan base of mysteries and Agatha Christie in particular. Everybody loves Agatha. So it's like <laughs> such a great way to talk to people and meet people. Totally. Uh, but everything else, like, like it's one thing to post reviews and content like that and writing the clues letter. Like that's very much me and, you know, in my office, just writing that. Mm -hmm. But uh, the videos, I will say TikTok was like a, a new challenge for me. Okay. And so I know people talk about book talk and how important it is to be on there. And I will tell you, if you're not used to talking on video, it, there's a pretty steep learning curve. Mm. And I know like you probably get this as a podcaster. It can be really difficult sometimes to talk and think on your feet like that. And mm. um, even with pre-recorded content, I found myself like, oh my gosh, how am I going to say what I want to say? I'm just not used to doing this. So I joined Book Talk and I just decided to start doing it. And now I feel a lot more comfortable doing it. But if anybody's out there wondering if they should join TikTok... <laughs> Uh, just stick with it because okay. you do get better. It is, it is a skill. Okay. Um, and if you like talking about books, it is a great place to be. Oh, well, I'm, so I'm not on TikTok and I, I'm not for any particular reason other than that. Like it's just, I, there's so many platforms and I at a certain mm -hmm. point have to kind of choose um, where I'm mm -hmm. spending my time. But um, you're convincing me a little bit. Maybe I need to, because if something is a, you know, book talk specifically sounds right up my alley. Like that's where I probably mm -hmm. should be living, right? Um, so maybe I need to try it out. Yeah, I mean, you could even just, my recommendation if you are interested, if anybody's interested, is just to make an account and start like looking at hashtags and following people in the book space and just seeing what they're posting. Like mm -hmm. you don't even need to post yet. Like that's what I would give. That's the advice I would give to authors in particular, wondering what's going on on there. Mm -hmm. um, you don't necessarily need to contribute in order to get, have fun with it or get something out of it. So okay. just seeing how people talk about books in that space has been really interesting to me. And that's kind of how I started too. It's mm -hmm. just engaging as just a reader in that space and then, then trying to put out my own videos, which right. I was, I felt more prepared to do because I already knew what the expectations were. Right. That makes sense. So what is it about mysteries in particular that interests you? Like, what do they offer that other mm -hmm. genres don't offer? I think it's just there's in every mystery, there's, you know, a carrot dangling in front of your head and you have to get to the end to get that carrot. There's an incentive to keep reading a mystery and you don't really um, get that. I don't get that out of any other book. Mm. honestly. And I think reading, you know, when I started reading a lot more, I, I read a few memoirs, I read some romance, I read uh, some fantasy. And 
I don't do that anymore because I think my brain has kind of been broken by <laughs> the, the mystery. Like it's just so it's so exciting to read something and figure it out while you're reading it. That I, and I don't get this experience with mm. any other genre. Okay, um, that's not to say that I haven't enjoyed those other books. It's just that I don't gravitate towards them anymore because I feel more inclined to read a mystery now. Mm. But the community aspect of yeah. it and the, the people, the massive fan base of mysteries make yeah. it really worthwhile. Mm. So you would consider yourself like a puzzle-based reader? Like you like to work it out as you're reading? Yes and no. I I do it, I think, naturally. Mm. I, I like to do it. I think everybody does. And and especially with non-Christie books, uh, I find it pretty easy to to guess correctly. And I'm not really guessing like based on any evidence really it's yeah. just a lot of who's the least likely to be the murderer and a lot of times <laughs> yeah that's, that's the person. <laughs> yeah I, yeah um but as long as I can stay entertained while I'm reading it I don't really care if I guess it correctly or not yeah um but I don't really take it seriously enough to try to figure it out while I'm reading it okay. I'll say that I think I if I enjoy what I'm reading the mystery does take a bit of a backseat but it's always there and always really important to me yeah but yeah I, I kind of only, I won't say that recently, but like kind of in my adulthood realized that there are people who are puzzle driven in terms of the way they read mm -hmm. mysteries because it honestly never even occurred to me when I was young and up like up until now when I read a mystery, I have no interest in trying to mm -hmm. do anything outside of the context of the book. Like I just want to be in the book um, and mm -hmm. I guess, yeah, like, so that's so, it's so fascinating to me that there are multiple ways to engage with mystery books, which I think there mm -hmm. are less, less chance of that in other types of genres, but that there's kind of like this idea that there are people out there really trying to work out the puzzles and like be, are fulfilled mm -hmm. whether they get it right or not. Um, I find really fascinating and interesting. And I almost wish that I had that desire. It's like, a, like people who enjoy doing the Sunday crossword. I've just like never, <laughs> never been into mm -hmm. it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I find that really interesting, but uh, I think you and I fall maybe a bit more on the same side of like just being along for the ride. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I definitely yeah. value the puzzle, but yeah, just, yeah. I want to have a good time when I read <laughs> yeah. book. And, I, and, and those, those books that are well-written, like Christy is, in addition to having a really brilliant puzzle, like that's the sweet spot. Totally. Um, other than Christy, do you have any favorite mystery writers you want to share? Yeah, you know, I it's funny I used to say that Agatha Christie was my favorite author and she still is, obviously. I'm not going to <laughs> How cause dare any you? Blasphemous. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um so you can put the pitchforks down. I <laughs> I love Christie, but I will say recently I've been in the past year or so I've been getting really into Elizabeth Peters. And that's like on the opposite end of the spectrum. Like she almost has no puzzle at all. Mm -hmm. She's she kind of I don't know how she wrote her books, but it's very much felt like a seat of her pants kind of thing at some mm -hmm. points. Like the mystery didn't feel like that. It never feels very technical. It's yeah. always very like, yeah, there's a lot of things going on, a, a lot of action and suspense in addition to maybe a, a murder or something like that. Mm -hmm. But Elizabeth Peters, I started with her Amelia Peabody series, which is her most famous. And but then I found the Vicky Bliss mystery series, which um, is about an art historian. And I realized, oh, my gosh, like this is exactly something that I want to read because it's 
they're hilarious. Yeah. They they have a mystery, but there's a lot of action and there's just a little dash of romance that I really, really love. Yeah. And so um again, that's really not like Christie at all, but it, it is nice to read these authors who uh play with the genre and in maybe more looser terms. But yeah. for some reason the the humor, kind of like why didn't they ask Evans? Like that's when I realized I really like to have humor in the books that I read. And so like the Richard Osman series, the Thursday Day Murder Club, that's always a fan favorite. And mm-hmm. definitely the humor has something to do with that. Yeah. And then Elizabeth Peters making those like wisecrack jokes all the time and having these like feisty heroines who are very smart and capable and um it funny. Like it's just so entertaining to read those books. So mm. yeah. Fantastic. So are you ready to dive into our book for this episode? Yeah. Okay. I I hope so. (laughs) So we are reading, (laughs) we are reading an appointment with death, uh, which I'm very excited about. And I'm just going to do a little historical note before we dive into the book itself. Um, Mm-hmm. An Appointment with Death is a Poirot mystery that was published in 1938, first in the UK and later that same year in the US. It was preceded by Death on the Nile and followed by Her- uh, Hercule-, Ugh, whoa. Hercule Poirot's Christmas, um, which are both fantastic. And uh, so this was really kind of a golden age of Poirot. Um, the book is mainly set in Jerusalem and Petra, inspired by Christie's trips with her archaeologist husband, Max Mallowan. Um, Critical reception of this book was generally positive, although following the brilliance of Death on the Nile, it was seen to be kind of secondary and perhaps a bit too focused on the psychology, uh, which is, um, to be honest, why I like it, (laughs) but we'll talk about that later. Um, There are quite a few references in this book to other cases, including Cards on the Table, Murder on the Orient Express, and the ABC Murders. Um, I find the reference to Murder on the Orient Express by Nadine Boynton to be particularly interesting, and we can talk about that. Um, as we talk about the book, but uh, Christie adapted an appointment with death for the stage in 1945, uh, drastically reworking the story, not only to remove Poirot, which she often did for the theater, but also changing who the killer was. Uh, In that version, and spoilers for the stage version of an appointment with death, uh, Mrs. Boynton actually kills herself and plants red herrings so that her family will be suspected, so that she can kind of lord over them even in death. Um, There are several adaptations of this story, most notably the ITV version with David Suchet and the sixth and final Peter Ustinov uh, as Poirot film in 1988. That version also starred Lauren Bacall and Carrie Fisher. Uh, Despite the really great cast, it's usually considered kind of the weakest outing of the Ustinov adaptations. Um, So that's our little historical note. Manon, can you give a brief one minute or so synopsis of An Appointment with Death? I can sure try. <laughs> Do your uh, best. <laughs> so Poirot is on holiday, as he always is when murder pops up, and <laughs> then he overhears a conversation about uh, between two, a man and a woman, saying, "You know, this woman has to be killed." And then flash forward several chapters, and he arrives in Petra and finds that that woman has died and then he says he's going to solve this case in 24 hours and see um what happens very i don't know if that (laughs) that doesn't really cover honestly the the victim because she's such a focal point of the book yes this this absolute tyrant of a victim yeah yeah that was that was excellent thank you and you're you're right i mean there's this is quite a diffuse book there's a lot to talk about so one minute was never going to cut it but um 
So I always enjoy reading this book. This is actually one of my favorites, um, and I find new things every time in it. Was this your first time reading An Appointment with Death? It was. Okay. Yeah. So what were, what are your just first impressions in general? Um, first impressions is Poirot was really, I, I mean, he did come in quite late. Mm-hmm. He had a bit of a teaser in the beginning, mm-hmm. almost like a, a prologue or a preface, and mm-hmm. then he comes in quite late, yeah. which I thought was interesting. And then the psychological components of it, the the, the focus on the victim's psychological profile and mm-hmm. what she felt inclined to do, mm-hmm. the torture that she put her family through was honestly very, very intense. Yeah. And I did not expect Christy to craft such uh, an outwardly, undeniably malevolent character. I thought it was absolutely fascinating how she uh, painted that picture of her Um and this poor family that's under her sadistic wing. Mm-hmm. That was absolutely fascinating. But yeah. um, I mean, we can talk about the solution, I guess, further on. But I was I was pretty surprised by it. And it felt, uh, you know, it was a logical uh, yeah. uh, solution. It made sense very much. But it also felt a little bit emotionally, like I just felt a little deflated at the end. I thought, oh, um, it wasn't exactly what I expected and didn't have that grand climax that I like in a parlor room scene yeah. so but that was definitely interesting yeah I completely agree and we I mean we can talk about it now I don't think we have to go in order or anything but I mm. I felt that not having one of the Boynton family members be the murderer was a little bit of a cop-out in this book mm-hmm. um, because the psychological element is so strong um, mm-hmm. and and I wondered if that was because she wrote this right after Death on the Nile, and that has such a psychologically intense um, kind of conclusion that maybe she wanted this to be more a little bit more of just like a twist. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know exactly why she chose to do that, but I I actually prefer the stage ending. I think that's much more psychologically interesting then what ends up happening? I don't know if you agree with that. Uh, yeah, I I wondered, you know, when she reworked it for the stage, if she had misgivings about this book. Like, yeah. it's one thing to remove Poirot, because I think in this book, he he's not as uh, prevalent. And, and I know that she didn't particularly care for his character. So, of course, you know, if she's rethinking the books, maybe she doesn't feel like he's necessary. But I wonder if she just had second thoughts about the way that this ended because it really was like it just first of all the the her as the as the um murderer what's her name sorry lady westmacott uh westholm westholm westmacott is is agatha christie's (laughs) pen name for her oh my god yeah Yeah. (laughs) of course i would get that mixed up yes Lady Westholm as yeah. the as the murderer is one thing, and then also when it's revealed, uh, she's not even in the room, right? I know. Right? Uh, which is like such a letdown for me. Like, don't you just want everybody there who's involved, kind of like the murder on the Orient Express or the death on the Nile, when you yeah. have everybody there, and it's a really tense yeah. scene because you never know where the finger is going to be pointing next. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've read a Christie where. The, where the murderer wasn't involved in that final reveal. Yeah, well, it's it's a strange thing because he basically gets them all together to tell them they're all innocent um, mm-hmm. in the most dramatic way possible. 
like he is like and then I figured out it was you Ginevra and then he does his whole thing with Ginevra mm-hmm. and then it's like but uh, but it wasn't you um so mm-hmm. he really he makes it so theatrical but generally when he does that it's for a purpose which is that he's kind of building the suspense towards eventually pointing the finger at the killer so he's letting the killer feel like I got away with it for a moment like there's this kind mm-hmm. of ebb and flow none of that exists here so it's it seems like a very non-functional mm-hmm. scene um, mm-hmm. to me, uh, even though I enjoy it. I mean, I love when Perot gets everyone together and, and points his fingers. <laughs> I think it's so much fun, but, um, but usually it also has a purpose. <laughs> yeah. And then after all that happens, they hear a gunshot and no justice is even able to be served because, um, Lady Westholm, you know, shoots herself. So it's yeah. kind of this double letdown for me. I was like, whoa, because yeah. it is a really incredible uh, a murder puzzle because of the timing and yeah. the ingenuity of Lady Westholm to commit that the way she did. Yeah. And then all of that kind of fell flat at the end. Um, all this exciting, you know, lead up to how she did it. And then you hear that gunshot and you're like, oh, you yeah. know, nothing's really going to be coming from this. Yeah. The t- All the stuff with the timing did feel a little bit like Christy was playing with a format. Like, mm-hmm. can I make this type of mystery work where it's like about the, min- the like dollars and cents of it, like every single minute counts. Um, and I know mm-hmm. those types of mysteries were popular around the same time. Um, I did. Was it convincing for you? Like, did you enjoy that? All- like, were you keeping up with it? Because I just was like, OK, like five minutes, 10. Like, I don't, <laughs> I'm not like keeping up with the exact <laughs> time here, you know? Um, yeah. You know, I wish I could read it again, just knowing what I know. Yeah. But it's always very obvious, I think, when she plants clues mm-hmm. and especially, you know, Poirot is very obvious on what he fixates on. Mm-hmm. And you kind of understand like this, this scene or this particular occurrence is, is really important. Um, and so I was not keeping up with it timing wise, <laughs> but I did, I feel like by now I have a pretty good idea of what's going to come back and, yeah. and the, what's going to be explained. And I right. know that there's only one possible solution in which everything works in this case. So um, I, I, I feel like I'm well-trained and that I know what to look for, but man, sometimes you just have to sit back and let her tell you how it's going. Cause I couldn't figure it out for sure while I was reading it. Right. Yeah, I, I kind of felt the same where I was like, I'm not going to bring out my stopwatch to like read this yeah. book. You know, she can, she'll get there. <laughs> she'll tell me. Yeah. Um, but, but exactly. it is, but it was very much like a format. And I, you know, Christy often does that and plays around with it. And, and she's, I mean, that's why she has been as beloved for so long is that she not only can master the format, she can play with it too. Um, mm-hmm. So in terms of the romance of this book, there's quite a few romances, but um, I don't always find Christie's romances to be like that convincing, to be honest. But I really mm-hmm. do think that the romance of Sarah King and Raymond Boynton works for me, um, as well as Lennox and Nadine, actually. Um, I think that their kind of push and pull felt very real and natural. How did you feel about that? I, I agree. I think... Christy writes these young female characters really well. She's mm. she she writes these strong women, even though sometimes she has these moments of is feminism really worth it? And I think there are a few comments like that in this book, especially with um Lady Westholm being this really rah-rah feminist for her time. And yeah. it felt like Christy was looking down upon that. hundred uh, percent. Or or talking yeah. 
but in terms of the romance, I did really like Sarah King's character. Yeah. She reminded me of uh, the protagonist from The Man in the Brown Suit in her kind of um, demeanor mm. and her ability to, to, you know, she wants to do something and she goes and does it. And in contrast to The Man in the Brown Suit, she she doesn't want to be controlled by her romance, <laughs> yeah. which I think was, um, I think that was the romance dynamic in Brown Suit. But yeah, she was like a submissive, with, basically. <laughs> yeah, she was like really, you know, kind of aggressive and then she falls in love and then she's like, oh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just a little lady. <laughs> that sort of kind of vibe. Um, but yeah, in, in this book, I think Sarah King and, and Raymond, mm. um, Sarah has this moment where I feel like I, I highlighted it somewhere in my book, but she she says she she has had one of those overbearing partners and thought she might like a stronger partner, but then realized she didn't. Mm. And so to have Raymond be this a little bit softer partner for her was mm-hmm. um, really effective. And you could see the way that she had this effect on him. I think she he was kind of like in a daze after speaking with her. It felt very romantic and it felt like... Um, there was enough tension with his mother being overbearing to create a realistic impossible romance scenario um but yeah and and it 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 kind of was similar to the Nadine um and Lennox dynamic and mm-hmm. Nadine is this very isn't she an ex-nurse like she's very kind yeah, of she prim and nurse. strong yeah yeah and then Lennox is doesn't have much of a backbone again because he's from this abusive family but both of those felt like fairly realistic romantic pairings for me. Yeah, um, I I agree, and I'm yeah, I am going to disagree with you on Anne Bedingfeld in the Man in the Brown Suit. I I am not a fan of pluck, and I just <laughs> I feel like there's a particular type of like plucky character that that Agatha Christie often creates in her kind of um not so much her mysteries but like her kind of adventure books, the earlier ones in the twenties mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. that I just I don't particularly enjoy, and I find um not really that well fleshed out and not very like deep. Um, whereas I found Sarah King to be very deep. I found her to be interesting. Mm-hmm. She was having an interior life that you were seeing reflected um, and kind of fighting with herself about whether or not to pursue this relationship. Um, that scene where they kind of walk off together for a while and they end up sitting and kind of just like very gently touching hands. It just felt like mm-hmm. very young romance, but in a really real way to me. Um, I really, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it, and I um, was very happy in the epilogue of the book to to see them together and have a family. You know, I think it mm-hmm. was just um, it really worked for me. And as you say, with the same with Nadine, where she's kind of this strong character who's fighting with herself about do I leave mm-hmm. this man who is not doing what I need him to do for me in my life, or do mm-hmm. I um, do I just stay and kind of be miserable and um, that felt very real as well. And they're educated women too. Like Mm -hmm. Sarah King being a doctor felt very, um, and she has these kind of high level conversations with Dr. Gerard about, Mm -hmm. you know, psychology and all that. Yeah. um, I, I did really enjoy Sarah's character and there is a depth to her. I think that, I mean, I think man in the brown suit was 10 years older than than this book at least. It's it's in public domain. So it is, it's considerably older, but yeah, um, yeah, it's like Sarah King it did felt feel very mature and competent, and yeah, um, and yet and yet she had that you know these feminine moments of of falling for this yeah. for this impossible love. 
yeah. I loved that um, the line she has where when she's talking about having lied about um, she didn't lie about the time of death, but she did lie about I can't remember what the exact lie was, but she says um, to Poirot and to Dr. Gerard, it wasn't a professional lie. Mm-hmm. And she makes that real distinction of like, I can lie about something if it's in my personal life, but I would never lie about something mm-hmm. having to do with being a doctor. I take that very seriously. Mm-hmm. And he, Dr. Gerard really connects that. He says, yeah, that's, that makes sense to me. The psychology mm-hmm. of that makes sense. So I, I liked even in her kind of figuring out, you know, what was going on in this whole situation and potentially that someone she maybe was falling in love with was a murderer that she kind of had principles and ethics that she was standing by and, um, but was struggling with as well. I thought it was just, there was a lot of elements to it that I thought were really, because Christy does, the, the words are so, um, she paints in such broad strokes and characterizations are made very quickly. Sometimes it's hard to recognize when there's significant depth. And I think this is, mm-hmm. this is a book that conveys significant depth very quickly and easily. Um, and it's one of the reasons I like it so much. Do you think that's partly because Poirot was absent in that first part? So you really get to sink into those dynamics of the family and the other characters? Because that's what I felt is that mm. he, you know, it's not like he's overbearing, but he does have a purpose. Mm-hmm. And when he's not there, there is no detective purpose and so you're allowed to really sit with these people yes I don't know if that was the impression you got too I completely I wouldn't have actually been able to articulate that until you said it and I think you're completely right um you know Christy often takes out Poirot from her stage adaptations because she thinks he draws too much attention on the stage Mm. and um I think that is also why he's often found in like the second half of books like this and there's quite a few books where he's not in the first part of it and he comes in in the second part and he's there as a mm-hmm. functional, kind of as a tool, um, mm-hmm. as a functional character. Yeah. And because he has such a big personality, um, he draws all the energy on the page and he's so much fun to read and he's so engaged with everything that's happening. It's really impossible to set up a story that doesn't include him if he's there. Um, so I completely agree with you. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's why we get so much psychology so quickly, um, from the, the Boynton family, which is, I mean, what a nightmare of a family. Oh my God. <laughs> I know, mean, again, I was just like reading the, this ongoing description of how horrible the matriarch was. And I thought, oh my God. And then, you know, I, I think another thing that was interesting about this is, um, it has all that discussion about how horrible she is. And, Mm. and then Poirot is talking to, I think it's Gerard who says this, but he has this really adamant moment where he says it is never okay to kill. It is never a moral thing to do. And even if it feels like this person is so horrible that they deserve to die, it is never okay to do that. Yeah. Which as a mystery reader, as a murder mystery reader, and I'm sure you get this, you probably think about, um, how ethical it is for me to agree with these murders when the character is painted, the victim is painted to be so unlikable, That's right. which is definitely a thing that, that um, carried over that carried over into contemporary cozy mysteries to have an unlikable victim. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it was like a, an extremely unlikable person <laughs> yeah. who's horrible to everybody around her. And yet you have this moment of um, no, it is never okay to kill even in an, an instance like this. Yeah. So 
there was a lot of discussion about evil and morality and yes. you know the morality of murder in this that I found really uh, interesting yeah. psychologically interesting. I agree with you, and you know, I mean, Poro has this famous line, which is, "I don't approve of murder," and and mm-hmm. that is really a backbone for how he interacts with pretty much every case he comes into contact with, with the exception of murder on the Orient Express. And and that's why it's so interesting when Nadine Boynton, when he's when he's questioning her, when Poirot, Poirot is questioning her, she says, I heard that you let a group of people go, that you didn't, mm-hmm. that you, she, I think she says you accepted the official um, verdict of what happened. Mm-hmm. And would you be able to do the same thing now? And, um, and then they never go on to say why, how she would have heard that story, um, but she's, yeah. she she does know it, and um, and he basically says no, and I wonder what do you think was the moral difference in those stories that would have made him choose one over the other? I honestly, I don't know how to answer this. I think <laughs> there might know, there might be him. no answer. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's kind of like. Sometimes Christy puts these lines in her books and it's very Mm self-referential. Almost, it feels like maybe some inquisitive fan asked her this question. She was like, no, I would never do a murder on the Orient Express again uh, because maybe Poirot would never do that again. Or Mm -hmm. maybe Christy just would never approach a a murder mystery in the same way. Yeah. But maybe with the Boynton family, because it is a family and because these people... um, you know, the, they're an insular group that is affected by this woman, and yet they're not really capable of getting out of, out of it themselves. Um, I don't know if it makes a difference if it's like a family accused of murder or if it's a group of diverse, essentially strangers who do it together. But um, that is an interesting that is an interesting question. But I do I do think that Christie is very self aware when she writes things like that mm-hmm. because it is like oh yeah. She puts these things in her book where it's like you as a reader feel like she's talking directly to you. Yeah. And it has nothing to do really with the narrative. Right. So very interesting to think about that. It is. And I I do also wonder if she's actually offering Poirot a a moment of growth or a moment of regret, Mm. um, Mm -hmm. which we don't see him. We don't see him change very much over the course of the books. We don't see him Um, talk much about regret occasionally when he'll talk about like the Countess Vera Rossikoff or something he'll talk about when I was a young man and I, I loved a woman, et cetera, or I, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, for the most part, we don't see that kind of reflectiveness. Um, And yeah, maybe this is just a little window of that because, because I don't, he wasn't happy about what he had to do with murder on the Orient Mm -hmm. Express. So I, my sense is like, he's not going to do that again because he doesn't want to have to do that again. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. done out of a sense of like joy or, um, or morality, or it was just like what it had to be in that moment. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I wonder if it was more of just a kind of a, an offering to Poirot to be a better person mm-hmm. by his own standards, really. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Who knows? But I, I do love when she throws in those little references. There was another one to the ABC murders where um, 
Mrs. Pierce is like, oh, I've heard all about you from the ABC murders. This must have been Poirot's favorite book to be in because everyone knew who he was. It was like he was the most <laughs> famous. Um, mm-hmm. So you could, he was like really his like feathers were really like big and fluffy. This whole book, you know, everyone was like so impressed with him all the time. Yeah, I love I love when he has that. Like I, I this is kind of off topic, but mm-hmm. I found this list of uh, David Suchet's character notes on Poirot mm-hmm. and like what he's noticed about how he behaves in the book and yeah. one thing that really stuck with me is um, is that Poirot is very professionally conceited but uh, personally very humble about mm-hmm. his his own character mm-hmm. so every time I read a Poirot book now I'm thinking oh you know of course he's going to feel very uh, proud and outwardly you know you know his feathers will puff up about a case that he worked on mm-hmm. and he's proud of that but anytime there's he's he's gets these compliments he's kind of like personally he doesn't really have that same ego there's moments of like where he drops the ego and I think that's Mm. what makes him such a really interesting character is that he he is you know conceited in some ways but in other ways he's really quite humble yeah and I there's always something to admire about him Uh, yeah I agree I also I like that he um he accepts compliments like at face value you know, if someone's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, I've heard you're the greatest detective in the world, he'll just be like very simply like, yes, that's true. And, you know, there's, I, I, I like the, the conceit of like when people compliment you, it's okay to just say like, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think more people, I think we should all be better at doing that. You know, we often do this thing. It's like also like a particularly English thing of being like, no, 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 no. I'm actually terrible. I'm the worst. You'd never want to be around <laughs> me. And like really Poirot totally pushes back against that. And I think the British kind of um, like response to that is to think, well, he's very conceited, but maybe he just is like mm-hmm. living in reality and saying like, yes, yeah. thank you for he's, saying he's the a truth. Very song sense of self, yeah, yeah, it's, it's admirable, <laughs> and yet he's so likable. Like he's really uh, kind to the right people, and and mm-hmm. so it's never like you never get the sense of I hate this little Belgian man who just is so full of himself. Like, I never feel like that. I know no. some people probably don't like Faro. Mm. I don't know who, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it is a, it's like, she's crafted this character who's so dimensional in that respect and has those moments of things that you may not like about a person or things that you may find kind of abrasive and things that, you know, he is really kind and he's a gentleman and he's, you know, I just, I, I love him. Yeah, very chivalrous as well. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the ending of this book because it's, it's as we talked about a little bit previously, it's one of the only elements for me that I really, uh, just doesn't quite gel for me. I, I really wish it had been one of the Boynton children. <laughs> uh, I wish one of them had killed their mother, which is like the craziest thing to say, or a stepmother, I suppose. Um who do you think would have been a good villain murderer? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I agree. Like this, this whole, the, the murder really came out of left field for me, but yeah, same. Um, you really want, like, as a reader, you really want one of the members of her family to kind of take charge and, and to, you know, fix their situation. I think there's some, empowerment there even though we just had this entire discussion about is it moral to kill somebody Mm -hmm. and clearly according to these characters it's not but as a reader like it is it would be really satisfying to see that happen um I was kind of leaning towards 
Lennox just because he has that motivation from Nadine. Mm-hmm. You like maybe that's the romantic in me. Like he wants to save his relationship, so he's going to do what he needs to do to um keep Nadine with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was kind of what I was hoping for. Or uh Raymond, I guess, kind of for the same reasons. Or mm-hmm. even I was I I knew Christy wouldn't do a murder on the Orient Express again, but I was thinking maybe every mm-hmm. child is is involved somehow. Yeah. But, you know, as a reader, you just want to see some sort of justice. And I think you look to the family uh, for some for some hope there in regards to justice. Yeah, I think for me, it was more the kind of psychological element of the book, because we spent so much time with these characters and like the sadism of their mother and how trapped they felt. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to escape all of this. And rather than being Mm -hmm. the architects of their own freedom or any of them being the architect of their own freedom, Mm -hmm it ends up being some random person that has nothing to do with the family. Um, and so it yeah. w- wouldn't feel so much like justice for me because I, I agree with Paro in, in that I I don't think there's an ethical way to murder somebody. Um, mm-hmm. That said, it would have psychologically made sense to me to have one of those children be the murderer, especially since we spent so much time and so much more time than any other Christie book that I can think of. Um, delving into the minds of these people. Um, mm-hmm. So that just, it felt like a missed opportunity to like really peel back another layer. And I agree with you. I think Lennox would have been the right choice. Mm-hmm. Like you really want to see what you perceive to be the underdog as doing something inconceivable. Mm. Um, but, and it is, it does feel like a strange sort of justice to have this outsider do something that benefited people that she really didn't know yeah um it was really interesting and i think the decision to change the narrative for the stage Mm. i mean we talked about that already but um to have her kill herself as a form of torture uh of her other family members do you think that would be more satisfying as a of just to get your perspective on it, would that be more satisfying to you to have that in the book? Yeah, I think so. That's really twisted. Like it's really twisted yeah. and it, and it fits with her type of sadism because it's like she then dies kind of with a smile on her lips. You know what I mean? She's like forever will kind of go off into eternity wherever she may roam um, mm-hmm. with that as her kind of final moment, a gift to herself. And and all of her children then have to live under the cloud of who possibly could have done it. Um, mm-hmm. And not only would it potentially make them maybe get someone arrested or even hanged, but they would all be suspicious of each other. Um, so it like mm-hmm. really tears people apart in like so many ways um, that mm-hmm. it's pretty brilliant <laughs> and not in a good way. I mean, it's obviously horrific, but I, I do think that's more interesting as an ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Not to, you know, I mean, <laughs> I sound like I'm like really promoting this idea, but I'm not. I'm just saying as a, <laughs> as a book, if we're going to go, because I think what, what I like about this book is it's really psychologically dark. You know, sad, I mean, mm-hmm. they talk, they, they talk diagnosis. They say she's a sadist and that's not done that often in Christie, um, where they kind of mm-hmm. give a psychological diagnosis, um, but we kind of get into that stuff here. And I think it's Christy diving into that a little bit. And it's like, if you're going to do it, just go for it. Like go all the way. Mm-hmm. And maybe she realized that after she wrote this, maybe it's not the most 
satisfying ending. Or maybe she read the critics' reviews, which, from my understanding, did comment on the ending, feeling, mm-hmm. you know, a bit of a letdown. Uh, very interesting in that respect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is such a buildup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then really like a 24-hour, uh, uh, you know, race to solve it by Poirot. And mm. then all of a sudden he comes, and all of a sudden it just ends, mm. right? And you don't get that satisfaction of of justice being served unless you consider suicide to be justice, which I don't really care for in mm. in mysteries. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, I would agree. I am. Um, I do. I would like to point out the um, the character of Cadbury. I think to your point about mm. Christie being quite funny, he is such a great dose of comic relief um, throughout what is, I think, a pretty dark. Um, uh, narrative. Uh, he's just so funny to me and has so many great little zingers um, and how he like kind of keeps putting his tie out to the side when Pro is like keeps trying to <laughs> make his tie straight. Um, he just really served up a little bit of, of fun and lightness, I think. Mm-hmm. That's always, I think, necessary. I was really appreciated in a book like this because yeah. she went on and on about this really oppressive character. Yeah. I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I just did not expect that. Yeah. Um, with this book so yeah. where does this sit then and for you the christies you've read like the pantheon of christies where does this sit for you i want to say it is sort of in the middle leaning higher mm-hmm. in terms of my enjoyment of it yeah. um because i read a few that i didn't particularly care for but this one um I did enjoy it and it and it was really different. And I think also part of my enjoyment was because I was reading it for this discussion, yeah. I was able to pay closer attention to things and um, that really improved my enjoyment of it because oh, I don't always read very closely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, it is, you know, pretty high up there for me, fairly high up there, mostly because of just how different it was. And it was, you know, another... Uh, example to me of why Christie is such an incredible writer is because she's able to produce these books that are uh, really all over the place in terms of quality and yet you can enjoy them pretty much always yeah Um, so it was a lot different than I expected Um, and I also really like the the setting I I like it when she travels in her books and it was really interesting to have her perspective on that um, and how I mean from a historical perspective how people would travel then it's very different to now. So reading that is, is always interesting. But That's true. I enjoyed it. You did. It was just different. And in the <laughs> ending, again, like that ending, it just is like, okay. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I, yeah. I agree with you. I, I, as I've said, I really like this book. It kind of sits for me with alongside, um, I don't know if you'll agree with me, with Halloween Party. Um, mm. Not because the books are similar. And I think Halloween Party is not as good of a book. But... They're books where she kind of tries something. She like takes a mm. big swing. And mm-hmm. I, I like when an author takes a big swing and try, and she wrote so many books. It's like, why not try something, you know? Yeah. Um, so I appreciate that about her, that she was willing to do that. This is a different book than any of her other books, similarly to Halloween Party, which is a weird book, such a strange book. And there are some parts of it that yeah. are totally transcendent and some parts of it that are just like, you, I would be fine if I never read again. Um, and we talk about this a lot with, I did an episode with Robin Stevens about Halloween party, which she also finds to be one of those like weird, I can't get it out of my head type of books. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, it f- somehow fits into that 
corner of Christie's work for me, which is like, is it the best of her work? No, but I really like it because she's trying to do something different. Mm-hmm. And parts of it are done incredibly well. Yeah. Like, I thought the timing of the murder was like, I'd compare that to Evil Under the Sun, which was a very, yeah. um, you know, time specific murder. Yeah. Like, like for an the timing only. of that was so <laughs> yeah. intricate. Yeah. Yeah. And so this appointment with death was like, um, you know, there's only one way it could work and there's only one timing that worked out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was, I appreciated the intricacy of that yeah. and the genius of that. It yeah. was just, I think the emotional thing as a reader, you can't really get over, like, especially reading a murder mystery, you, you want the justice, you want the satisfying mm. conclusion. And I didn't really get that with this one. Yeah, I understand. Um, but everything else was really unique. And I agree. Like, I love when she tries something mm-hmm. a little bit kooky and, and, <laughs> and, and just sees where that leads her. I know. Give it a whirl, girl. You never know <laughs> where things might take <laughs> so you. crazy. I know. Uh, thank you so much for being here. This was so much fun. Um, where oh, would you, you like so to be found? Yeah, of course. Would you like to be found <laughs> by the people? And if so, where can they find you? Absolutely. So um, I guess I'm most active on Instagram and TikTok mm-hmm. at Mystery Manon, M-A-N-O-N. Mm-hmm. That's how you spell that. And then also my website, manonwogan.com. Uh, has my sign-up links for the clues letter, which is my bi-weekly email newsletter all about the the genre. And I do put a lot of Agatha Christie content. You do, yeah. I do. I, there's always something. It feels like every week somebody's talking about Christie in a I new know. way. So that's always really exciting. But I also have interviews with contemporary mystery authors. And I really try to cover the spectrum of crime, cozy mystery, thrillers, suspense. So hopefully there's something for everybody in that. Absolutely. And as a subscriber, I have to say it's a really well done newsletter and it's, it's always just enough information. Like sometimes there are newsletters where it's not enough info or newsletters where it's so long where you're like, well, I needed two days to read this. Yours has the exact (laughs) right amount of information. So I always really appreciate that, that it's like, gets me the info I want and it doesn't, um, like expect me to, you know, come back tomorrow. It's kind of like, then (laughs) there's another one coming. And I, I love that. It's like, I know it's a lot of work for you, but I think I'm sure really mm. readers really appreciate how much of like all the bites that you give them. I appreciate you saying that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, It's um, a lot of fun to write. So Fantastic. So we yeah. will have all the links in our episode notes so people can check out you on your many platforms and also uh, your website and the clues letter. Um, thank you again mm-hmm. for being here. This was so much fun. And uh, I hope that uh, we can talk again soon. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks so much. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you to our producer, Kate Rochelle, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. To stay up to date and get some extra fun info, you can follow us on Instagram at Tea and Murder. Rating and reviewing us really helps, so please do that if you feel so inclined. We're on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please remember to follow us there and recommend us to anyone you think might need a little tea and or murder in their lives. Our next book is Murder on the Links. Rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookstore, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next episode's book can be found in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We'll be back in two weeks. Don't miss us too much. 